Welcome to the Well Woman Show, where we use intersectional feminism, mindfulness, leadership, and strategy to support smart women to change the world without anxiety, insecurity, and burnout. So not only were women losing job, jobs at four times the rate as their male counterparts, when schools or daycares closed, they were also the primary caregivers in their families and had to take on virtual learning as well. So um, it was a double, double burden uh, for, for working women. On the show, we challenge the status quo and support you to unlearn harmful messages that keep you playing small so you can activate your superpowers and live with joy, confidence, and ease. I'm your host, Giovanna Rossi. Hello, hello, Well Women. Welcome to the show. This week on The Well Woman Show, I talked to Dr. C. Nicole Mason, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Institute for Women's Policy Research referred to during the interview as IWPR. It's a leading voice on pay equity, economic policies, and research impacting women. Having stepped into this role in November 2019, Dr. Mason is the youngest person currently leading one of the major inside the Beltway think tanks in Washington, D.C., and one of the few women of color to do so. She succeeded noted economist and MacArthur Fellow Heidi Hartman, the Institute's founding CEO. As one of the nation's foremost intersectional researchers and scholars, Dr. C. Nicole Mason brings a fresh perspective and a wealth of experience to the Institute for Women's Policy Research. For the past two decades, Dr. Mason has spearheaded research on issues relating to economic security, poverty, women's issues, and entitlement reforms, policy formation and political participation among women, communities of color, and youth and racial equity. Prior to IWPR, Dr. Mason was the executive director of the Women of Color Policy Network at New York University's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service, the nation's only research and policy center focused on women of color at a nationally ranked school of public administration. She is also an inaugural Ascend Fellow at the Aspen Institute in Washington, D.C. Dr. Mason is the author of Born Bright, A Young Girl's Journey from Nothing to Something in America, and has written hundreds of articles on community development, women, poverty, and economic security. Her writing and commentary have been featured in the New York Times, MSNBC, CNN, and many other outlets. On the show, we discuss why don't women earn the same as their male counterparts, and what can we all do to bridge this gap, and what was the impact of COVID-19 on our wage gap in America? So I've got lots coming up for you on the Well Woman Show. Something I'm particularly excited about right now is that I want to let you know during the month of May, the Well Woman Show will welcome a series of guest hosts who are past guests on the show. And in honor of Mother's Day, they will interview their own moms. We've already started production on this, and I can tell you these stories are not to be missed. We will have Bobsy Sanandale interviewing her mom, Kazi Sanandale, who left her rural village in South Africa to build a life of service here in the U.S. These stories and a lot more during the month of May on The Well Woman Show. And you can listen to The Well Woman Show every week at the NPR One app or just by going to npr.org and searching for The Well Woman Podcast. We produce every single week for you. And so there will be lots more coming up in May. 
You can find notes from today's show at wellwomanlife.com slash 245 show. You can also continue the conversation in the Well Woman Life community group at wellwomanlife.com slash community. The Well Woman Show is thankful for support from the Well Woman Academy at wellwomanlife.com slash academy. This is our monthly group coaching program. We meet weekly and it's a place to get support for your dreams and to really realize your potential. I'm speaking with Dr. C. Nicole Mason today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So happy to be here. Yes. Uh, well, it's great to have you. I have followed your work and, and the work of the Institute for Women's Policy Research. And I was very interested to see recently the study that your organization published uh, talking about women earning less than men. Not a big mm-hmm. surprise. But I think that the timing was because of, you know, Pay Equity Day and Women's History Month. But can you just talk a little bit about the highlights and really the big findings that maybe were surprising this time? Well, so this equal pay day, the gender pay gap shrank a tiny bit. And it shrank because of the pandemic and the enormous amount of job losses experienced by women during the pandemic, mostly lower wage workers. And so those women dropping out of the workforce shrank the wage gap by a tiny bit. We're only talking about maybe a half a cent. But what that tells us is that the most vulnerable workers, lower wage workers, it really has an impact in terms of thinking about equal pay and the amount women are paid compared to men. And the other thing that it's really important to know is that in female-dominated sectors, regardless of the number of women in the sector, race, class, when men enter those sectors, um, they out-earn men, excuse me, they out-earn women. And the same is not true for women who enter male-dominated sectors. They never out-earn men. Right. And I I loved the way the study really looked at pay across occupations. So Mm -hmm. really kind of a deep dive into these different male and female dominated occupations. And so there are a few things here that you've that you've brought up. I mean, the first thing is the pandemic, you know, and the women leaving the workforce and and that being the cause of, you know, this kind of like reducing slightly of the wage gap. But what is your organization doing, thinking about women leaving the workforce and the prospects for women re-entering the workforce and and not just not just higher professional women but like you know the lower paid women as well so we've been doing a lot so since the start of the pandemic i thought it was really important for iwpr to be uh, at the forefront and helping to shape the conversation and articulate the impact of the pandemic and the covid fueled economic downturn on women and articulate who's been most impacted the sectors that have been most impacted And that was really helpful in terms of helping policy legislators, advocates really understand the depth of the problem and the kind of policy strategies and solutions that would be necessary to help women reenter the workforce. Care was also became a really big issue during the pandemic because of school closures and daycare closures. So not only were women losing job, jobs at four times the rate as their male counterparts, when schools and daycares closed, they were also the primary caregivers in their families and had to take on virtual learning as well. So it was a double, double burden uh, for, for working women. Yes, absolutely. And many women listening to this show are exactly those women that you're talking about that are 
you know, juggling kids at home, doing school online and working Mm -hmm. or making the difficult decision to leave work. So what are some of those policy solutions and strategies that you mentioned that you referred to just now? What are some of those for actually really addressing this in a big way? So long-term, we focus a lot on long-term strategies. In the short term, of course, many of the things that are in the American Rescue Plan are really vital and necessary for women who have fallen out of the workforce and need continued economic supports. So housing and food assistance, uh, the expansion of unemployment insurance, paid sick leave, those things are all critically important in the short term. In the long term, uh, what we know is that many of the systems were not working for, for women in the first place. So like the care, the care system, child care. And so we have been advocating a national child care infrastructure where no family spends more than 7% of their income on care. So treating care as a child care as a public good rather than a, fam- a private family obligation, you know, strengthening the care infrastructure. So again, there are, we have more choices in more facilities and care workers are compensated fairly. We, you know, I really like the child tax credit for families and increasing the amount of the credit to from to 3600 for you know small children and $3,000 for older children. And it's paid in advance, so monthly. Um, that goes a long way and has the ability to do, decrease child poverty by at least 45%. The Paycheck Fairness Act, pay, pay, Paycheck Fairness Act is also really important. Again, trying to chip away at that pay, uh, that, that pay and equity. And um, it's really important for families, you know, both at the state level and the federal level to have paid sick leave. You know, so those things are some of the policy solutions. But, you know, to be honest, private, the private sector, they are on the front lines right now because in the absence of federal policies, women are applying for jobs now. And so employers need to be flexible, examine their workplace policies and benefits to make sure that they are supportive of women returning to the workforce. Yes, absolutely. So there's a role to play for all all uh, mm-hmm. members of the community, not just government, mm-hmm. but business as well. And, you know, your organization is so key and, and it does so much work on on sort of the nitty gritty and like the policy solutions and these these really complex issues that Congress is facing. And what do you think, like taking a, a sort of a, bigger, broader perspective on it, what do you think is really necessary for almost like a culture shift for for the way people think about, about this and about women and work and care, particularly in light of, you know, the recent election and the big section of people that are, you know, working against this administration. And so what, what would you say to that? So the irony is the pandemic has created an opportunity that we wouldn't have had otherwise. So it's it has really had a devastating impact on women and families um, and exacerbated a lot of inequalities. At the same time, it has also provided us this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, or at least once-in-a-generation opportunity to really fix some of the broken systems and structures. And there's more political will um, than you know, than we've ever had or I've I've not seen since I've been doing the work. And we, you know, the conversations, for example, around child care happened in private. Like many families struggle with care in private or talk to women, talk to their friends and sort of worked around this broken system. But 
um, for the first time, we have corporate from you know corporate women to women on the front lines talking about the issue of care and are refusing to internalize it and make it an individual problem. They, you know, now there's a recognition that it's actually a structural problem that needs fixing. So that will allow us to shift some of the culture so that we can have these deeper systemic changes. Yes. And how do you see this conversation about care now compared to the conversation about care, like historically, you know, decades ago when it, when it was at the forefront and almost, you know, we almost made a lot of headway decades ago with care. How is the conversation different now? Well, I mean, I think it's different because because in 1970, for example, I mean, we've had some fits and starts around care, you know, building a strong care infrastructure in the U.S. But the last time around, uh, Nixon said that we couldn't afford it. It was a waste of money and it would weaken families. And that was the end of it. Families sort of went about trying to find quick fixes or like trying to manage the problem on their own. And I think we're in a moment where that is not the case. Um, families understand the importance of care. Economists understand the importance of care to labor force participation for women. And advocates, again, have started to reframe care as a one, as an infrastructure issue. And also one that is, again, not a personal problem for women, but a a systemic institutional problem. And we also have an administration that is listening and in a way that didn't, you know, hasn't happened since the 1970s, I would say, around the issue of care. Yeah. And so that's really invigorating. Yes, absolutely. And you just met with Vice President Kamala Harris. Can you tell us about that conversation? Well, I was a part of a meeting with advocates talking about equal pay. And, you know, I just have to say that I was, this is just an aside anecdote. I was reading the Wall Street Journal and there was a headline that said, why isn't Biden listening to the experts? And I said, well, he is. He's just not listening to Larry Summers in the same way or these, you know, he's listening to, you know, a diverse group of experts and stakeholders who have a a different perspective and he's allowing them to have input and to shape the policies of his administration. And so that meeting with um, the vice president. Um, Heather Boucher, who's a former president of Equitable, Center for Equitable Growth, and Cecilia Rouse, a, a very well-noted um, economist, were also in that meeting and understood because, one, they're women and they understand and have been impact, impacted by the pay gap. You know, we're able to speak to the issues and really talk about, like, how we might move forward. And so that's, you know, it's better than lip service. It's it's one thing to sort of hold an event and, like, get sort of like, yeah, this is horrible. And it's another thing to um, be in partnership with um, an administration that says, we're going to fix this. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for calling that out about about the expert comment, because it seems that um, we're we're redefining what expert looks like and what expert sounds like. And and that is going to be a challenge for those who have held that title for so long. Dr. Mason, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. 
You're invited to join me for a brand new monthly group experience over in the Well Woman Academy. This is a monthly group that includes access to the full six-week course based on feminism, mindfulness, and the Well Woman Life Framework. It includes weekly groups, coaching sessions with me, as well as office hours and a private Facebook group to share and grow. Don't get me wrong, this is hard work. But with these tools, you will easily find the time to do the course, get the coaching, and reach your goals monthly. If you find yourself worrying about whether you'll ever make it in the thing you're pursuing, waking up in the middle of the night with anxiety, lacking the energy you need to get everything done, stuck in some aspect of leading your team, procrastinating on moving forward with projects and tasks, or in a leadership role but second-guessing yourself constantly, I'd love to introduce you to the Well Woman Academy. It's for smart, high-achieving women changing the world who want to overcome anxiety, burnout, perfectionism, and insecurity. The result? You get to live your well woman life, a life of joy, ease, and abundance, even when things are tough all around you. Visit wellwomanlife.com slash academy to learn more. We're back on the Well Woman Show with Dr. C. Nicole Mason of the Institute for Women's Policy Research, and we're going into the segment called Superpowers for Success, where we really get to understand our guest in a deeper way. Dr. Mason, what does success in life mean for you? What does success in life mean to me? I think I feel like an IWPR, I'm living my passion and doing my life's work. And so winning on a number of issues that I care about, like pay equity, getting a national child care infrastructure, you know, that looks like success to me in my, my work and being able to work alongside my brilliant leaders. At home, it's, it's, you know, making sure that my children have a world where who they are, but they can be fully, they can be themselves, like their full selves and not have to worry about, you know, being treated differently because of their race, their gender, um, and who they are as individuals. Okay. And when did you know you were really good at what you do? You know, I think, um, <laughs> I started, you know, doing work around women's issues in college and you know, I didn't know where it would lead. I just knew that this was the work. Thankfully, I learned, found out early on or that this is the work I believe that I wanted to do in, with my life. And so getting to a place like getting to IWPR was just a windy, windy road and, you know, gaining the skills uh, along the way. And really being a student. So really learning what I didn't know about like organizational leadership and development, fundraising, networking, relationship building, all those things, learning over the way and making huge, huge mistakes along the way. It was also a part of the process, but it all, you know, got me here to this moment. Was there a moment that you can share when you felt like a leader, like I'm, I'm leading? Like I'm a leader and, and you like really acknowledge that for yourself? Oh my goodness. So it was actually quite recent. I was invited to give testimony to before Congress, uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, my schedule is so crazy that, you know, so we got the invitation and I just accepted it because like, it's great. I'm going to testify before Congress. And I think we had allocated an hour for it. You know, I literally had no idea about the magnitude. So I think, <laughs> and then I get there and also I got there and I was upset 
<laughs> because I was told that I was going to be the second speaker after Megan Rapino, the soccer star. And I'm just an eager beaver. So I was super excited. And then they announced the lineup, Representative Maloney announces the lineup. And I'm like, last. And I'm sort of disappointed. I'm like a little deflated because I'm like, why do I have to go last? I don't understand this. And I realized that I went last because I was after the opposition speaker who was against equal pay. And, you know, I was essentially the rebuttal. And um, and then I was testifying for like three and a half hours on the importance of equal pay. And I was really humbled by the experience because I knew or felt like I was bringing the experiences of women from across the country into the room and, you know, voicing what we know to be true about our experiences in the workforce and in America. And so in that moment, I felt like a leader, but I also felt a huge amount of responsibility. And I just remember thinking, I want to do really well. And I was <laughs> super tired afterwards because I literally didn't know it was going to be like three and a half hours, but it was really, it was really amazing. Oh my gosh. That's an amazing story. And that takes so much concentration and energy to to sit and be on for that long. And how, like, how did you pull that together in that moment of, you know, the, the initial sort of excitement and then the disappointment and then the long haul and just like, that just sounds like a lot. <laughs> I don't even... I and well, what I realized is that I had all these stats and data and facts in my head that I could just pull on. I was just like, because I, I literally wrote my testimony and I thought that was it. I thought I was going to give the five minute testimony because they told me I just had five minutes and then that would be it. And then it wasn't it. And I just, I was getting questions about you know, the trans community, I was getting questions about unions, I was getting all these different kinds of questions. And thankfully, because this is the work I'm passionate about, I can not only answer with data and stats, I can also speak from my heart about like what I believe and who I think we should be as a country. And so that was, the, I think the magic of it you know, being able to find the data and the facts was like, you know, grounded in like, real lived experiences. Yes, and that's so critical now for leaders. I think that you're a great example of really bringing that to to light, which is to say, yes, you've got all the degrees and all the experience and all the expertise and the data, but you're also bringing your lived experience and your, um, you know, just the clarity of like who you are really had to show up in those moments for you to do what you did. So I think that's a great lesson for women listening, for leaders who are out there working um, to, to, you know, to show up as who they are in, in the spaces that, that they show up in. Dr. Mason, what superpower did you discover you had only to realize it was there all the time? What superpower? With IWPR, um, the superpower that I didn't know I had was like, it's actually like if I, I don't know if there's a superhero that like has, there is one that has like a lot of different things that they can pull from or gadgets, um, so to speak. But I realized that like, I'm 
good at a lot of different things that make being a leader of an organization like IWPR possible. Like I'm a good researcher, a good fundraiser, I'm a good, you know, um, coalition builder, all of these things. And I didn't know that, I don't know what that superpower is called. I mean, I don't know if it's like a Swiss army knife kind of super, I don't know, <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, yeah, but like I can, yeah, like, I, you know, so in that I didn't, a lot of it is intuitive, you know? And so I didn't know that it was like a real thing until like I got into this role and I was like, oh, you need all of these things at the same time. And I think that's what's made me successful in this role because I know a lot about, I know a little about a lot of things. <laughs> um, and it's been really great to be able to activate those different skills. Yeah, things. I love that. Okay. And just a couple, few more questions here. Um, describe a personal habit that contributes to your own well-being so you can do everything you do in the world. Oh my goodness. So I'm, I'm a big believer in self-care and I know that people are always like self-care, but I really, it's, it's not because I like, you know, whatever. It's not like a fad to me. I am a Bikram, I'm a hot yoga enthusiast, um, you know, and I meditate and I exercise regularly. Um, and it just helps me to stay centered, especially when there's so many different competing priorities, like taking the time out um, for myself to like do things that I love or like take care of my body is really important to me. Like this morning, you know, I'm at the gym at by six o'clock in the morning, you know, before my day starts um, and, and then come back and meditate for a little while before I wake my children up. And so you know, so it just, it's just how you start your day that matters for me. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. And uh, what advice would you give your younger self, say 25 years old or 30 years old? I think it's like, just to keep going, um, you're going to figure it out. <laughs> and I was so um, overzealous, uh, you know, I've been called overzealous a million times by like, you know, since I was like a teenager. And so, you know, because just really feel, you know, in this work, especially I feel a sense of urgency. And so um, just my 25 year old self saying, okay, you're going to get there and you're going to just keep going. Um, and it's just, it's all going to make sense. Yeah. And it, it is. And you know, it's been great. Okay. And do you identify as a feminist? Of course. Of course. <laughs> what, of course. what does that mean for you? <sighs> a, a person who is committed to equity and equality for all women um, and is actively working in their own lives um, for, you know, a more just and equitable world. Um, one that is, you know, equitable in terms of, you know, race, class, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, all of these different, you know, markers of difference. And I believe that it looks different for everyone. And I'm not a person who believes that like, oh, in order to be a feminist, you have to like go to a take back the night rally or something like that, or like work in a feminist organization. Like you can do things in your everyday life. Like my mom was I don't think we'll call herself a feminist, but she was, and my grandmother and many of the women in my family. And so I just think it's really important to honor the ways in which 
women in their everyday lives resist gender roles and stereotypes and expectations and um, stretch us all to think about the ways in which we can do and be better in the world. Uh, okay, last question for you. Uh, what are you reading right now? What's on your nightstand? Oh my goodness. And that's mostly, so I have like a ton of ton of books, but I have to say most of my reading free time is spent reading um, juicy research reports. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> like, you know, that's what I'm curling up with these days. Um, but it's really exciting because we're working on a, a report on the financial cost of sexual harassment which comes up. We're doing a project on young women of color leaders for the Miss Foundation. Um, and these things are really exciting because I know once they're out in the world, it'll really start a lot of great conversations and changes. Okay. Well, Dr. Mason, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much. That's it for our show today. Remember, if you need support to live your Well Woman Life, head over to wellwomanlife.com slash Facebook to join our community. As a reminder, we are on NPR every week, so be sure to tune in at npr.org slash podcasts and search for The Well Woman Show. If you enjoyed today's show, please take a moment and subscribe and leave a review. This helps raise visibility, which is super helpful when it comes to producing the show every week. For feedback, comments, or just to let me know you were listening, find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Well Woman Life. I'm Giovanna Rossi for The Well Woman Show. Until next time, have a super powerful week.